As I was um, getting ready for this service and thinking about being outside, I was actually reminded of the psalmist who in Psalm 96 talks about, you know, nature. And in that psalm, which is this beautiful psalm of praise, he reminds us about how all of nature sings praises to the Lord. It talks about how the trees, the flowers, the creation, the animals, everyone is singing praises to the Lord. And also in that psalm, he then calls not only the people who follow Jesus or follow God in Jerusalem, but there's a psalm that calls all of the world to ascribe praises, all the families, all the earth. And that psalm actually ends with one of my favorite verses, and it says this, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant, and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. So I think whenever we come outside, it's a chance not only to be outside, but to be reminded that all of creation sings praises to our God. All of creation is not only a reflection of our God, but they're doing what they're supposed to do, and in doing what they're supposed to do, they're worshiping God which is a reminder to us that we too, as God's creation, are meant to worship God. This morning we're starting a new series on the book of Acts. Um, a couple weeks ago on Pentecost, I shared a, a quote from Gordon Fee, who's a church scholar, who said that, you know, we as the church are the community that lives the life of the future in the present. And I've been kind of thinking about that and meditating on it, even praying through that in this next, in the last couple of weeks, just thinking about where are we supposed to go next, where are we supposed to go next. But where he sees the church, as in we, the living church today, local and global, multicultural, multinational, um, all over the world, yes, but also people from all over the world gathered under one umbrella. All of us together are supposed to be living this life of the future now and the present, which dies very much with what Jesus says, right? The kingdom is coming, but the kingdom is already here. So in essence, we as the church are supposed to be living lives in these values of the kingdom. And then on both sides of, um, of Easter and Lent this year, we talk about remembering how God's been revealed to us. So I think when I put those two together, right, how do we live the life of the present, of the kingdom, in the, uh, how do we live the life of the future in the present, and how do we talk about how God's been revealed to us? I kept coming back to the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts, and sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but I really think it should be changed to the, the, the book of Peter, right, and the other minor prophets, right, all the minor characters. Because Peter is a very much a central character, and we'll see in the story this morning how central Peter is. But also, though, you see this birth of the church. And I think as we think about what does it mean to live lives of the future and the present, I think it's always good to go back to the source. Where is the church birth? What did the church look like? And what are the lessons we can learn? So we're going to be looking back at the church then to see how it can help us now. If you have your Bibles, or I think it might be on your sheet, I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 to 47, Acts 2, 42, Acts 2, 42 to 47. Starting at verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold everything. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see where you are moving. Give us noses to smell the sweet aroma of Christ all around us. Give us ears to hear the still voice of God. Bless our tongues to speak the love of Christ. Bless our heart and hands to feel and give the love of God. Amen? 
So the book of Acts is really the second half of Luke's, um, I guess his, his, I was going to say his uh, epoch, but that's not the word I want, right? It's the second half of Luke's great work, right? So a lot of church scholars and yeah, over the last 2,000 years have actually concluded that Luke acts as one book. But we separate it because the gospel, according to Luke, looks at Jesus as Messiah. This Jewish Savior that was promised who fulfills all these things, but yet he comes for the world. And then when you get to the book of Acts, it's really the most knowledge we have about the early church. So that's why we separate them, not because Luke didn't write both, but because one focus is on this is who Jesus is. And the second one is this is who Jesus has called us to be. When we get to the end of Acts chapter 2, this is really the end of the birth of the church. So far in Acts, we've had Jesus ascended to heaven. And before he ascends to heaven, he reminds all of them, you are going to be my witnesses. Everything you've learned from me, I need you to teach them. And you're going to represent me here in Jerusalem, here in our region, Judea and Samaria, and yes, also to the ends of the earth. So from the very beginning, the church is meant to represent and reflect Christ. The church is meant to take everything that Jesus has taught them and teach it, not just to their families or their small groups or, or their neighborhoods, but to actually have a path and a work for the world. Jesus calls all of us as the church to individually be thinking of ways that we're investing in our Jerusalems, right? So for us, that's our families, that's our neighborhoods, that's our blocks, that's our cities, that's our townships. But it also tells us to be thinking of ways to invest in our region. What's our Judea? What's our Samaria? How does it mean to really invest in this area, right? And then also, we have to have eyes for all the world. What does it mean? What is our ends of the earth? That's what we're supposed to reflect in Christ too. So you have this promise that you will be my witnesses, and then also that the Holy Spirit is coming. And then, after Jesus makes this promise, he goes up to heaven, and, and they, they had 12 disciples, and now they have 11, so they have to pick one. And so this is uh, one of the, I think the only time in the New Testament specifically, where they actually draw lots to, to pick Matthias as the successor. And I thought this was very, very interesting because a lot of Anabaptists do this. In BIC history, you know, there, there's two different schools of thought. I just learned this last night, actually. And the first school of thought was that, you know, most churches, you know, maybe 100 years ago, maybe a little bit less, in the BIC would have this team of three pastors, right? And they would sit up front. And, and, and so, like, when they come up front, they literally would cast lots, right? And whoever, I would say whoever won, but you might not feel like you won that morning. Um, but whoever won would give the message, right? So you, it was, everybody was doing a faith exercise. Like, the people would come, you guys pretty much have the same job. You would come with this faith exercise that, like, God's going to give me something, you know, God's going to speak, and it'll be good, and I'll, I'll, so you guys stayed the same. But these three gentlemen up here, using your imagination, they didn't know who was preaching around what, right? So they would just cast lots and pick it. So I asked you know, our resident BIC scholar, I was just like, wait, is this the only way they did it? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> when there was only three on the team, sometimes people would move away, or sometimes people would pass away and go on to glory. So I was like, then what they would do? And they're like, oh, they would have another meeting. And people would gather together, and they would cast lots again. And if you won, you got to be part of the team, right? So it's, it's very, very interesting that like this has stuck in the Anabaptists. And I think part of that is because we want to follow Scripture. But what's interesting about the book of Acts, right? After they cast lots, then the Holy Spirit comes down, and every other time, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the picking. Every other time, it's the people's fruit in their lives that's saying they're a leader. Every other time, it's not defined by their gender or their, their multicultural or their, their ethnic status, right? It's defined by what the Spirit has revealed in them and how God's called them to be a leader. So I think it's very, very interesting that they pick Matthias this way, 
Pentecost, the Spirit comes down, the church is birthed. We get reminded that God always meets us where we're at. You know, people were gathered in Jerusalem, that's where the Spirit came. The people came from all over the world, that's where God met them. And they even heard the message of God, the message of Christ in their own language, and they're pushed out. And I think it's a good reminder to us again that as the church, we not only have this promise that God meets us where we're at, but we have this promise that God's going to send us out to who we know. To send us out to who we know. That means all of us must be thinking about consistent ways that we can minister to the people in our circle. And you've heard me say this time and time again, right? Only you know the people that you know. And God can only send you to the people that you know. And so that's what happens. And Peter preaches what's probably the best sermon of all time. And the crux or the, the center, the, the main idea of this is, is kind of what Luke sums up in his old gospel, is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not only the God of the universe, but he's left heaven to come to earth. That Jesus is so amazing that David, who you so praise, he dreamt of Jesus. And that Jesus is this Messiah who's come to save the world. So I need all of you to repent, turn to Jesus, and be baptized. And what's interesting is that we read that 3,000 were added to their number. Josephus, I think, counts that in that whole day and age, the Pharisees had about 6,000. So I think, we, or at least for me, when I thought about 3,000 added to their number, in Acts chapter 1, there's about 120 of them. So I was like, wow, 3,000, that's a lot. But think about the movement of the Spirit, that within one day, they had half the number of all the Pharisees that had been for generations. Within one day, God had built up this church to be not only in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. In one day, the Spirit call the people to not only turn to God, but be baptized, and then to go out into their world. So when we get to the end of Acts chapter 2, we get to verses 42 to 47. This is really the church's reaction to God's blessings. And I love that because I grew up where when you read the end of Acts 2, it's this utopian society, right? It's just like, this is what the church is supposed to be. This is so beautiful and amazing. And, and, and Steve Nylinger went down, but Steve Nylinger said to me one time, one of the most profound things I've ever heard. And he said, you know what? Churches are like hot dogs. And I was just like, that's interesting. And if you know Steve, it makes sense because he's an interesting person. Um, so I was like, what do you mean churches are like hot dogs? He was just like, they're delicious and they're great and they're good. I was like, yeah, I like that. And he goes, but the more you know about how they're made, right? Like, <laughs> the less you might like them hot dogs, right? So that's why it's hard for some of us to read Acts chapter 2 because everything seems so utopian. And for those of us who've been in church our whole lives, we're just like, was it really like this, though? Like, was it really? Like, everyone was on the same page? But Luke is making this point that it's not just about the utopian society, but it's about acknowledging these things. That God has blessed us with the Holy Spirit. That God has blessed us with Jesus, who's our Messiah. That God has blessed the church and added 3,000 to our number. What is our response? And that's maybe the critical question this morning. When you look at all the ways that God has blessed you, what is your response? Because just like that church back then, God has also blessed you with the Holy Spirit. God has also blessed you with Jesus as the Lord and Messiah, the one you follow, the one you bow to, the one we keep our eyes on, the one who grows us, the one who grooms us, the one who sends us out into our world. And God has also blessed us with the church. And I love that the church is now billions. I love that the church is now thousands of years old. I love that the church is now in every single continent. I love that the church is not only who we are at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, but who we are the world over. So what is the church's response? 
And when you read through this passage, you'll see that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. They had eyes to see God's miracles and awesome works that God was doing. They had hearts and minds that were committed not to themselves, but to each other. They gave sacrificially to help those in need. And they also worshiped and praised God together and made that a priority. So as we think this morning about how we've been blessed, the question becomes, maybe for some of us, in answering this, how do we be the church today? Maybe it's a devotion or a renewed devotion to what the scripture actually teach. Who is actually Jesus? Is he actually my Lord? Do I know what scripture calls of me? Because that's all the apostles taught was what Jesus taught them. And remember, even in the Great Commission, when Jesus sends them out, he says, teach them everything that I have taught you. So the question for us becomes, to those people that know us, have we taught them everything about Jesus that we know? And I don't think it's just a rhetorical question. I think it's a lifetime question and a consistent question we have to be asking ourselves. If everything we know about Jesus, is it known by our children? Is it known by our neighbors? Is it known by our workmates? Is it known by the people who even see us walking down the street? Because that's the call of the church. And maybe for some of us, it's this rededication to fellowship. We've had a long 16, 17, 18 months. And some of us are starting to come out of it. But in this 16, 17 months, we found out that we're more lonely than we've ever been. Some of us have felt more alone than we've ever been. Some of us have felt more ostracized or politicized. Some of us have felt like we're on islands. But this devotion to fellowship means that not that we ignore the loneliness that we feel within, but that we accept it as our responsibility to try to bridge that gap. Because if our world, not just the world, if our world, if people in your life do not know what the love of God feels like, that's your responsibility. If they don't know what the light of Christ looks like, that's your responsibility. So this dedication to fellowship isn't just, let's all get together. But it's kind of like the African proverb, right? We can't get anywhere by ourselves, but we can get everywhere together. So this dedication to fellowship isn't just, let's do something that's fun. But it's looking around the family, looking around to who we know, looking around to who's left behind, and extending that arm of fellowship to them. You know, I grew up going to a church where we had breaking of bread every week. You know, because we also took our Bible seriously. And so for my first 21 years of life, you asked me what breaking of bread was, I was like, it's a contemplative service? You know, we talk about who Jesus is, and then we have communion, right? And then I got to like college, and then even seminary, I started looking, I was like, wait, you tell me all the day was eight? You know, I really thought like that breaking of bread was like they came and they focused on Jesus and they had communion, and that's what it was. You know, this week, I, um, one of the things I did really well over the pandemic, I'm really expert at this, is binge-watching Netflix shows, right? I'm really good at it. It's like a, it's like a spiritual gift, maybe, but not quite, you know, because God, God expands your natural gifts, too, right? And so this week, I watched a show called High on the Hog. It's like a New York Times bestseller. And, and so one of the things that the author and then the guy who's basically chronicling it, and it's only four episodes, you can do it in a day, right? Some of us. Um, but what he's chronicling and what she chronicled in her book is this idea that American cuisine, right? What we consider actually American cuisine is just African. And that African-American are the true American cuisine. So for example, you get little nuggets like something like mac and cheese. Anyone love mac and cheese? Apparently, I was invented by a black guy. I didn't know that. That sounds really cool to me, right? I like mac and cheese, right? 
But in this one episode, they go back home to West Africa, and they're in the country of Benin, and, and they're sitting around, and they're gathered around, and it's interesting because you have people from Benin, you have people from, I think, Asia, or uh, Europe, and you have people from America, and they're sitting around, right? And they have all this food, and the food's coming out, and the food's coming out, and it dawns upon them. And there's one person, I forgot which one in the scene actually says this, it's like, it's almost like when we break bread with one another, it doesn't matter how different we are, it just matters that we're eating and sharing and getting to know each other. And I think the Anabaptists, and if you here before COVID, we got this right at BIC, right? Like, this is why we have Wednesday night prayer meeting. This is why we have fellowship dinner groups. This is why if your small group wants to have food, we'll give it to you. You know, this is why if we have any event, like even this afternoon, we're like, it's going to be hot. We don't know. We'll have snacks, right? There's an important thing about breaking bread together. And I think so for all of us, when we think about what does it mean to be the church, I think one way we can be the church and even be better as the church is to look at our dinner tables as the new gospel tract. It's to look at your neighbors as the new people to show witnesses to. And it's not to take the Bible and smack them upside the head to it, but it is to open up the pantry and open up the fridge and invite them to a meal. Because from the very beginning, breaking bread together has been a way God has grown the church. You know, when I we lived, this is the second weekend where I'm talking about Lemoyne. I feel like I'm getting all my Lemoyne stories out. So this is it. We're good for another 13 years, right? When I lived in Lemoyne, there was a bunch of us who had just graduated Messiah College. We were early 20-something. And we grew very disillusioned with the established church. Right? We were just looking around. We're just like, no one's living the way they're supposed to live. Because when you're 21, you know everything, right? Like, you just know everything. It's just, it's a gift, right? And, and, and so for us, instead of listening to the actual message of Acts chapter 2 and joining the fellowship and joining the body, we got really good at criticizing the church for everything it wasn't and everything it's supposed to be. And while there's a place for that, when you're only good at criticizing, it's a lot harder to actually be part of the family. If you're only good at talking about how, like, if every time I saw you, every time I saw you, I would only say something negative to you, it might be a little hard for you to actually love me, right? But we got this brilliant idea that we were going to plant a church. And we thought we were so good because we are like, we got this, right? We know what church is supposed to be. And shockingly, it was a horrible failure. And it wasn't because we didn't have good ideas. But it was because we missed the core teaching of Acts. It's not about forming the church. It's about being the church. It's not about your hopes and your dreams and your ideals. It's about what has God called us to. There's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I learned in that season. He says it this way. In new world times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish or a dream. Every human wish or dream that is injected into Christian community can be a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may ever be honest and even sacrificial. So it's not that we're not supposed to have dreams of what the church could be. It's that our dreams can never be bigger than God's dreams. And it's that we can't be so focused on forming and dreaming up the church that we're not actually being the church. So I love this early church. And I love that it's important. But I also love that it's only our beginning. There's no way you can tell me Peter, when he preached that sermon, dreamed of a day that we would be billions of people. 
There's no way you can tell me that, that Stephen, even who will go ahead and story, when he's martyred that day, there's no way you can tell me that he would be a, a patron saint to the millions or the tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of Christians who've sacrificed their lives for glory, who've sacrificed their life because of what they believe. The church is good to look at back then. But one of my favorite songwriters says it like this, I'd rather be working for a paycheck than waiting to win the lottery. I think that's the reminder to us as church. Yes, our dreams are important, but if we're not actually living and doing life together, we're not actually being the church. And I think it's good because sources are good. If you're researching, you need to go to a primary source. If you're in my family, you need to be there when it happens. Because that primary source changes over time. I don't know if you have family members like this, right? But it starts off with a story where they used to walk 17 miles to school. And then 51 miles backwards, right? Like to get back, it was 51 miles, right? When we go to the source, it's good to know what it was back then. And it's good to know that, you know, that this is the source of where it began. But I think the most important lesson that I've learned from this Acts chapter 2 is that it's only the beginning. And I think when I look at our church, in the season of not just transition and coming out of COVID, I want us to start adapting that mindset of all the work that God has taken us on, it's only the beginning. We can idealize 40 years ago, 25 years ago, 13 years ago, last year, pre-COVID, but it's only just the beginning. And I think how we step up in this season is to realize that these blessings that God has given us, it is not just our gifts. It is not just our history. It's not just our, our vision, but it's our responsibility. So we think about our children and youth. It's our responsibility to teach them the faith. It's our responsibility to teach them uh, a fellowship and what, what it means to be accepted and loved. It's our responsibility to break bread with them. It's our responsibility to teach them how to pray. It's our responsibility to show them how awesome our God is. We have new families or new individuals that come into our body. Guess what? They're not just a gift to us and a gift to the church. They're our responsibility. When we look at our families, look at our individuals, they're our responsibility. One of my favorite poets is Gwendolyn Brooks, and she says it like this, we are each other's harvest. And I'm not much of a farmer. I just like the fruit at the end. I don't feel like tilling. I don't feel like planting. The plant in my office is still fighting for dear life, and I'm so proud of her, you know? She's a good fighter. But she's neglected too much. But the thing about harvest, the thing about harvest is we can't enjoy the harvest without the work. And I think that's what I want us to remember when we think about what does it mean to be the church. So the response that I want you to think about today is what is God calling you to do to be the church? Is it a rededication to what Jesus has taught you? Is it, is it, is it fellowship? Not just coming together to have fun, but finding those people in your circles who feel alone and reaching out to them. Is it breaking bread? Is it looking at your dinner table as an avenue to show your world, to show your neighborhood, to show your neighbors what the love of God looks like? Is it a devotion to prayer? Where prayer is not just your laundry list for God, but it's actually sitting quietly and letting God speak to you. Is it asking God to train your eyes to see where God is moving? And then the harder part for some of us, when you see where God is moving, to actually have the boldness to jump in. Is it looking at the people in our church, not simply as just gifts and resources and what they can give us and what they can do, but as our responsibility. Because if we are indeed each other's harvest, 
if we are indeed each others and members of one another, then the work, then the work, then the work is what it means to be the church. <laughs>